Hey nerds, we understand you. Drop those controllers, lose the wizard hat, and ready your Cheetos. It's time for some hard-hitting talk about the movies, books, and games you love. So get ready, oh searcher of useless knowledge. It's time to step into the Geek Cave. Now, broadcasting from a top secret and totally awesome hidden base, I'm Ken Harris, and here's Darren Wright, Justin White, and Chad Savage. Welcome to another edition of Lights, Camera, GT Podcast Movies. I'm Darren. I'm Justin. And I'm Chad, reminding you that Samsung uses a butt-shaped robot to make sure its phones won't break when sat upon. Go, Android. <laughs> Welcome to the Geek K Podcast Movie segment, where we're brought to you by Shirtosaurus, digging up clothing from the past so you can look rad today. With great t-shirt, sweater, and hoodie designs on everything geek chic. Whether you're a fan of old school gaming, anime, 80s cartoons, or you're just weird, find something for you at Shirtosaurus.com. Also brought to you by Gamefly. With membership options for every budget, plus gifts for gamers of all ages, Gamefly has thousands of titles you can keep as long as you want. When you're done, just send it back with the posted paid envelope for a new one. Or keep it forever and pay a lot less than in-store prices. Sign up for a free 30-day trial right now using the link at geekcapodcast.com. When we redo this, when we ever get new ad copy, see yeah. if we can get fewer P's in a row. Okay. Because I I keep... All right, so sorry. All right, Gamefly, just heads up. And because of all that, now we got the pilot party. You know, I'm just so upset. Justin, <laughs> go. <laughs> uh, it's kind of anticlimactic for our musical guest, but ladies and gentlemen, welcome the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Pilot party! Pilot party! Pilot party! Welcome to Pilot Party, where I review an entire TV series based only on the first episode. We start with a murder. A young woman has just been bludgeoned to death by a novelty clock of Rodan's The Thinker. We see the killer note the time on the clock and then decides who he's going to frame. This begins Ace Attorney. Okay. Rookie defense attorney Phoenix Wright faces his first trial where he must defend his childhood friend Larry for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Cindy, the victim from earlier. Prosecutor Winston Payne brings out the key witness, Frank Schwitt, who claims to have seen Larry leave Cindy's apartment after the murder. With help from his mentor, Mia, Phoenix spots a contra contradiction between Schwitt's testimony and the time of Cindy's death, to which Schwitt responds that the time he heard came from the murder weapon, a handmade alarm clock modeled after the thinker. This leads Phoenix to deduce that the only way Schwitt could have known the thinker was a clock was if he used it to kill Cindy. Receiving advice from Mia, Phoenix finds the discrepancy between the time of death and the clock's time due to Cindy having come home from an overseas trip in another time zone, and she had the clock with her. Turns out Schwitt was the killer after all. Objection! <laughs> Larry is acquitted and gives Mia another thinker clock as thanks. That night, we see Amia's lifeless body on the ground next to her new clock. The show is bonkers. Well, yeah, the game series is bonkers. Yeah. 
I'm just, it's, I don't even know what to compare this show to other than the video game. Um, and it has that kind of flow to it. The back and forth in the courtroom is hysterical. And for something that starts with murder, it's whims it's got a whimsical quality to it. Uh, now for my predictions. The show goes on and Phoenix builds up a reputation as the best lawyer in Japan. Then suddenly he finds himself accused of murder. But who can help him? None other than the best crime-fighting duo. Angela Lansbury and Joe Pesci as Jessica Fletcher and Vincent Vinnie Gambini, the world's best investigator and lawyer. Following the clues, they discover the murder is actually Mia Fey. She was in love with Phoenix, but as his mentor, she couldn't act on it. So she did the only honorable thing, kill her long-lost twin sister to fake her own death. Unfortunately, once she got a taste for murder, she couldn't stop. The only way to get out was to get caught. So she framed Phoenix, knowing he'd prove his innocence and find the real culprit. Mia goes to jail, and we get the most epic crossover in history. See, I was hoping there'd be an attorney called uh, Jerry Dason. <laughs> I give it nine objections out of ten. Hold it. All right. Thank you, Justin. You're welcome. <clears throat> so there are a lot of shows out there that live in the memories of TV land. Some are given a new life, and some are relegated to the dustbins of history. And this segment of the show asks you about one such forgotten piece of television history and asks, should we review it? It was good then. The original is just as good now. Reboot it. The idea is sound, but we can modernize it and capture magic. Revive it. What are these characters doing after a couple decades of growth and development? Or refuse it. Odds, bods, hammer, and tongs. Oh, the 80s. Yeah. How often do we miss thee? I mean, not the Cold War parts. Well, yeah. No. Or, uh, or no. the AIDS epidemic. No. Mm, no. Don't don't like the lack of internet. No. Uh, general human rights. Okay, so we missed the pop culture of the 80s. There you go. There it is. Yeah. Uh, and this one maybe? This one maybe not. Let's find out. It aired for a total of three months. October, November, and December of 1988. Wow. A mere 14. Episodes were produced for it. It was part of the Marvel Action Universe programming block and was done specifically to sell the toys. A species of peaceful humanoids who lived on the planet Valoria are on the run from the predatory Rulons. They're led by Questar, but in their escape, something goes wrong. And they're sent back in time and space to the planet Earth some 65 million years in our past. Making the best of things, the Valorians use their amplified mental projector necklaces to telepathically communicate with the dinosaurs they encountered to befriend them, thus becoming the Dino Riders. Oh my oh god. Oh my god. Unfortunately, the Rulons were also sent back in time, having hitched a ride by way of tractor beam. Now, most of the episodes deal with some conflict between the two. There, There is at least one Ice Age episode, not that it matters, considering the way they toyed with the different eras and geological times of this. Uh, they could have taken place some in World War II, and nobody would have objected too much. I mean, they had a Tyrannosaurus Rex, a late Cretaceous spirit species, alongside a Dimetrodon, which is Permian, some 200 million years before that. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it featured a lot of Peter Cullen, a bit of Steven Dorff, some Frank Welker, 
and a bit of Rob Paulson, an assortment of those wonderful 80s voice actors that we just can't get enough of. So with little more to say on this, what do you say? Review, reboot, revive, or refuse? You see, here's my biggest thought about Dino Riders, which I haven't thought about until this very moment for years, (laughs) is that how in the hell was this not a success? Because you've got, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You've got Transformers. What did kids love when we were kids? What did we love? We loved dinosaurs. Right. We loved time travel sci-fi chicanery. Yeah. We loved the idea of, like, mounting your own dinosaur and firing rockets at another dinosaur. Mm, that's certainly a thing that This happens. had all of those things. I remember the toy line very vividly. Oh, yeah. Four uh, different series of toys. So it drives me nuts that I hadn't think about this show for decades until just now. Mm-hmm. And all I can think is, why wasn't this a success? Um. The first episode's available on YouTube. You'll learn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, with that little nugget. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say it like that. Okay. It, it's very much an 80s show, which means that it's the exciting bits of it are mostly in the theme song. I think that because we've learned how to make really, really good animated shows now. Mm-hmm. I think reboot it. Give it a shot. This is the kind of marketing idea that should print money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, reboot it for me. Odds, bods, hammer, and tongs. Okay. No. Not Just, interested at all, huh? No. Do you remember it? or? Yeah, I remember it. I remember the toys. I, I love the toys. At elementary school that had the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, I had the toys. Like the big toys were battery powered and they moved and made Yeah. No, I uh, I would much rather watch more Power Rangers where you had robot dinosaurs that morphed into a giant robot. Well, see, here's the thing. You can get both toys. I know, but I mean, it's just like if I... If, no. And just okay. think about the crossover. Oh, my God. Think about the crossover. Dino Riders versus... Oh, man, that'd been great. Someone get Boom Studios on the line. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Right now. So it is time for the Trailer Park Roundup. There are not a lot of trailers that came out this uh, this month. So we've got The First Omen. You know, I didn't need a prequel for the Omen movies. That being said, I do not need a sequel to the Omen movies. <laughs> so don't get any more ideas, 20th Century Studios. <laughs> well, they made sequels to it. Oh, I know. They made sequels. I don't need further sequels. Uh, Let's put it that way. I, okay. I don't need a modern sequel yeah, after... Gotcha. 40 years of no sequels. Gotcha. Uh, Lisa Frankenstein. Okay. So we got a, the the teaser trailer a couple months ago. But having fallen in love with a dead guy and somehow resurrecting him, Lisa, it seems, is now going to go on a killing spree to get new parts for her busted-ass undead boyfriend. It looks both funny and predictable, and I'm kind of here for it. <laughs> uh, Abigail. I'm interested in this one for its comedic potential a group of people have kidnapped a child and they are holding her going to hold her ransom surprise surprise however the little girl is a vampire and now the kidnappers are the victims yeah moi ha ha i've seen this trailer (laughs) yes uh float 
A soon-to-be medical doctor needs a summer off before taking next steps and chooses to spend it with her auntie. She meets Robbie Amell just before almost drowning. And what follows is a likely routine rom-com wherein she'll learn to swim and either reject moving away to be a doctor in the little town or she'll suffer some kind of heartache and choose career over love. It One of those two. He'll probably die. He might. Probably by drowning. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I can see it. So, uh, Tuesday, Julia Louise Dreyfus in a drama in which an incarnation of death that looks like the Birdemic version of Iago from Aladdin <laughs> comes for her child. <laughs> hey, it's me, Dad. You know what I don't like? It looks sad, but also really well done. So I look forward to watching it later. <laughs> Uh, it, it's not coming to theaters, but I want to talk about it anyway. Avatar, The Last Airbender. This looks so in, good. In this first live-action treatment of a beloved cartoon series, a lot of things look right. A lot of things sound right. And my spouse said, and I agree, that this does not look like they're trying to get new viewers. They're trying to convince old viewers and fans of the cartoon that this is worth the investment. I I agree with that because when you're watching, there are too many spoilers for characters yeah. that you're not supposed to see yeah. and know what's going on for it to. Yeah, I I would agree with that. The trailer almost seemed geared towards reassurance, kind of like <laughs> uh, Star Wars Episode Seven mm-hmm. for old fans. Reassurance. Don't worry, we're gonna take care of it. We're not M Night Shamwow. We're gonna do a good job. That kind of thing. And then, just a couple movies later, somehow... The Fire Nation attacked. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, Earthbending looks bad again. Uh, I hope not. All right, so I got a couple of reviews. All right. Um, Ladies versus Butlers. I didn't finish this anime. Hmm? I should have known what I was getting into, but I just chose to be ignorant. A guy wants to be a butler. And so he goes to a hospitality school to learn how to do so, wherein one of those top students is his childhood bully. Shenanigans and far too many pairs of underpants ensue. Not for me, but I can't really give it a grade either because it's like, hmm, I didn't watch enough of it and, ironically, too much of it. (laughs) Hurricane season. The somewhat true story of a multi-district basketball team in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina that tries to make the argument that kids should be responsible for their parents' decisions in the midst of an ecological crisis. Forrest Whitaker's good. Forrest Whitaker is always good, especially considering that he's going for portraying a mostly terrible person. C- minus on that one. Mm. You guys watch anything? Uh, I saw Echo. Yeah. The, Echo. the, the, yeah. Echo. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, it does a pretty good job of, uh, being what is under the Marvel Spotlight, uh, series, where you don't need to have seen any other Disney Plus or MCU property in order to understand what's going on. Huh. This is a new initiative that Disney is doing with certain characters, Echo being the first. Now, Echo, of course, is tied to another show, uh, Hawkeye, uh, where is where we first meet her. And yes, Daredevil does have a cameo appearance in the first episode. 
Daredevil played by Charlie Cox. So nice. It's still got that synergy. Kingpin is, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio has always been great as Kingpin, and he's great again as Kingpin. Uh, but I really, really love uh, a uh, the use of sign language because Echo as a character is deaf, and it's used throughout, and it's very easy to follow. B, they got cooperation from the Choctaw tribe of Oklahoma to do it right as far as a number of the cultural references and stuff like that. So it was very respectful on that front. I told Justin uh, during the break that it's a five-episode miniseries. The first three episodes felt like peak MCU. Mm-hmm. The two last episodes felt like really good Disney Plus MCU, mm-hmm. if that made sense. But I would still overall say well worth a watch. It is not for kids. There is a lot of violence in this. This is, if this were a theatrical release, it'd be an R. Uh, but uh, it also kind of gives me hope that Daredevil is going to be pretty close to the Netflix version based on what I saw in Echo. So I would say, yeah, Echo is definitely worth a watch. Nice. Cool. Um, I rediscovered something. Okay. Um. I had a chance to see the 1972 made-for-TV film The Night Stalker hmm. starring uh, Darren McGavin, the dad from A Christmas Story. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, he plays Carl Kolchak, a kind of f- f- almost frumpy, grizzled reporter. Right. You know, who is not afraid to get right up in the widow's face and go, so, you know, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're the widow. I'm just going to back off, you know. But it revolves, this movie revolves around a vampire stalking 1970s Las Vegas, which at the end, it's more the entire series because there's two TV movies and a series, all starring Darren McGavin as Kolchak, you know, you've got the vampire in Vegas, and then you've got this almost immortal killer on the loose in Seattle, and then the series takes place in Chicago, and he just, every episode dealt with a new supernatural thing that he was reporting on, and nobody really wanted to believe him, and the stories never really got run properly, mm-hmm. so it was just kind of this weird, silly, quirky, monster of the week kind of thing. I remember Kolchak the Night Stalker. Yeah. A weird show. Weird show, but fun. It only ran for one season, mm-hmm. like 20-some episodes, and the two previous TV made-for-TV movies, mm-hmm. which is weird because they both did really well, prompting the series, but then the series only lasted one season. <laughs> so if you get a chance, look it up. It's fun. Right on. Well, if those are the reviews and we don't deal with news, then it's time Ooh. just... Yeah. Ooh, one yeah. more thing. Yeah. And now it is time for Darren's Trivial Trivia. So, everyone here has seen Raiders of the Lost Art. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's classic. Yeah. Well, according to Steven Spielberg, the director, there was... You remember that scene where, like, Indy's running from this giant boulder? Right. In mm-hmm. the temple? Yeah. Uh, that 12-foot rock that chases Harrison Ford is made entirely of fiberglass, wood, and plaster. It weighed 300 pounds, and if it had hit him, it absolutely would have done some serious damage because Harrison Ford did not use a stunt double for that scene. <laughs> okay. Now you know. 
Now I know. It wasn't a fake rock. I mean, it was a fake rock, but it was a really big fake rock. Yeah. Whew. All right, then. Monsieur Kent. Oh, the lights are down low. Mm, the popcorn is hot. Mm, the drinks are cold. Ah, settle in for the cinematic universe of Chad's Random Movie Review. the roll of the dice my next movie is but i'm a cheerleader <laughs> yes <laughs> all right um of all the movies that could receive a cult following why is this one of them <laughs> santa claus versus the devil <laughs> I forgot you were doing this one. Is this 1950 Mexican fantasy film in which Santa Claus, who lives in outer space and has a seemingly ongoing feud with a devil named Pitch over the fate of the children of the world? That was my movie. Pitch tries to get the children to be naughty and, quote, do evil, end quote. Yeah. My roll of the dice had me watching the slightly edited and dubbed version into English. This is unfortunate because there could have been a further edited version that aired in 1993 on Mystery Science Theater 3000. That would have been my random movie, but no. That's that's the one I saw. <laughs> no, I get to watch the English dub of a 1950 Mexican fantasy film. <laughs> This is as random as the random movie gets. All right. Yes. So the movie starts with the narrator giving us a bit of background about Santa, where he lives, what he's up to. Santa laughs a little bit too loudly while he's putting together a nativity scene that has a gigantic Mary and Joseph, an itty bitty angel, <laughs> and an even itty bittier manger scene. So like Mary and Joseph are the size of the stable on the side. It's a thing. Anyway, Santa laughs a little too loudly at this and then proclaims that he needs to finish making the toys. Oh, but Santa's not making the toys. Oh, no, no, no. 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 Santa's going to play his organ. Not a euphemism. And his slave children, sorry, helpers, are going to make the toys while singing the songs of their homelands. So we start off with all of Africa being lumped together as a single country. Yep. While... While a few African children sing, wearing very stereotypical African tribes outfits. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Then the Spanish children sing, then the Chinese children, then the English children, and so on and so forth. There's lots of them. <laughs> Each of the children sing as though there's a weapon being pointed at their worst enemy, and the only way to save them is to be joyful. That is to say, these are the most apathetic singers and actors I have ever seen in the entirety of my film-watching experience. <laughs> to put it another way, the opening of Gaspar Noe's Love was more enthusiastic. So besides the rampant racism in this scene, there's also this really creepy camera watching an Indian girl dancing yeah. as she is depicted uh, as being, quote, oriental, end quote. Yeah, I cringe too. 
Meanwhile, a bunch of devils do a ballet until Lucifer banishes all of them except for Pitch, who's told that he's to turn the children of the world against Santa, or else he will be punished by being forced to eat, uh, checks notes, chocolate ice cream. So Pitch goes to Earth where he tries to tempt five children to be naughty because five is certainly close to all of the children of the world. I mean, it's more than none. Uh, it works with three boys, uh, three brothers that Pitch able, is able to tempt and entice to throw rocks through a window. Um, granted, I would want to throw rocks through that window because it also features an animatronic Santa that I believe is the genesis of the term nightmare fuel. <laughs> um, it does not work for Lupita, a poor little girl that only wants a dolly. She almost steals it, but she doesn't. And it does not work on Billy, a rich kid that just wants his parents to love him. Santa's child laborers inform Santa of what's going on in all this. And so Santa, now wanting to make sure that he's in the know, uses a device that checks notes, looks a bit too much like a nightmare. Oh, sorry. To spy on Lupita's dreams. Yep. Unfortunately, Pitch is in that dream, and Lupita, who is dreaming of having a dolly, all she wants is a dolly. What does she get? She's got a dolly in the dream, but she also gets about a dozen life-size aberrations that exist only in the nightmares of the Elder Gods as conceptualized by Lovecraft. <laughs> they dance around her like Dementors threatening to swallow her soul like Shang Tsung after a six-day fast. Despite it all, Lupita remains strong and refuses to be naughty. Now content with his spying, Santa goes over his mail, then goes to see his friend Merlin. Yeah, that guy. Yep. <laughs> Merlin is old, he's absent-minded, and he likes to prance. That's the only way that he moves, by the by. Imagine riding a stick pony. Are you imagining riding that stick pony? Yes. Now, keep the keep, keep sound effects, too. You know, the dirt, the dirt, the dirt. You know, you, you got a stick pony. Now, take away the stick, but keep the movement. Keep the sound effects. Okay. So Merlin gives Santa some sleeping powder to use on the children. Dear and he gives them a flower that allows Santa to go invisible. By the by, if Santa's name was Dan, this would be a rather different movie. <laughs> now, lest we forget, after Santa gets his, you know, gets his roofies and invisible, you know, flower, he goes to the key man who's made Santa a key that can open any portal. Any portal. <laughs> Santa has now become the key master. <laughs> uh, Damn it. <laughs> Santa then moves on to chimney sthenics. You know, he does some workouts so that he can fit through the chimneys. I don't know why he needs that. He's got a key that will open up any portal. <laughs> it's time to go, though. And now it is time to go. And Santa's slave children come and prepare the sleigh. And the clockwork reindeer that somehow still give the sense that they've seen things that can't be unseen. Now, once everything's ready, 
you know, the Russian child tries to convince Santa to use Sputniks to deliver toys. What? And the Red Scare informed director promptly ignores all that. And so Santa leaves and begins delivering toys. Now, the three naughty boys make a plan to capture Santa. It does not go well. Santa uses both loud noises and explosions to scare them away. Lupita yearns for a doll. Billy goes to bed, wishing that his parents would stay home for a night. Now, Santa uses sleeping powder on some boys. Way to go, Dan. (laughs) Makes himself invisible, even plays a prank on pitch. Now, as the movie goes on, the three boys get their comeuppance with some coal. Billy's parents are guilted into returning home with a Santa-inspired roofie. And then Santa gets treed by a dog. He can't put it to sleep because Pitch cut the the bag that had all the sleeping powder in it. Ah. Yep. And Pitch uses his, you know, dream language to alert the household to an intruder. The household calls the cops. They call the fire department. And then Merlin, in probably the most anxiety-inducing scene of the movie, because you know that there's only like eight minutes left. And now we got to wait for Merlin to save everyone. The dirt, the dirt, the dirt, the dirt. (laughs) The Merlin has to remind Santa, you have a bag full of toys, and if you have a cat toy, it will distract the dog. Sure. And you'll be able to get away. It works, because that's the kind of movie it is. And Santa has just enough time to get to Lapita's house to give her a doll before the credits roll. I mean, before sunrise comes about. By the by, if Santa doesn't get back to his outer space realm before sunrise, then his clockwork reindeer will turn into cocaine. Sorry, they say white powder, but I'm guessing what they mean. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Santa will be stranded on Earth then, and he'll starve to death because he only eats, uh, checks notes, pastries, which don't exist on this plane of existence. How crazy is that? So Christmas is safe. Pitch is defeated. The credits roll on this absolute horror show of a Christmas movie. The acting, except for Pitch and sometimes Santa is bad. The voice work for literally everybody is bad and not comically bad, just bad. Not 80s rad bad, just bad. (laughs) I would rather watch Jim Carrey's version of Christmas Carol before watching this again. I would rather watch Home Alone 3 than watch... I would rather watch the Star Wars Holiday Special Mm. than watch this again. Without the commentary of Mike, Crow, and Servo. Don't be like me. Or be like me and watch the MST3K version, because that is the only thing that saved it. With no other business, thanks to our sponsors, Shirtosaurus and Gamefly. Check out news and reviews not on the podcast on the website geekcavepodcast.com. Join the Discord for conversation. Tell your friends about where to find us, including Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Good Pod, so forth. Don't forget to check out our other offerings. You want me to watch what in week three? Then head over to the YouTube channel to see what Geek Cave Plays is all about. And hopefully we'll get some retromantics again, too. For Kent Harris, our Egon Spangler, iconic. For Darren Wright, our Ray Stance, excited by everything. For Justin White, our Pete Venkman, the looker. I'm Chad Savage, our Winston Zedmore, the last guy to join. Thanks for listening, and remember... Everyone is a geek for something.